0: Pastor Ed Marcel is here with us this morning, he's the former pastor, lead pastor Terranova Church. Uh, network, actually, three churches, Nova in Troy, Saratoga, and North Adams, uh, has also been involved with the Northeast, uh, the Northeast Director of the Acts 29 Network, uh, planting and help planting several churches, not only in the Northeast, but around the globe as they brought him in, and just been a great encouragement to many uh, church planters. Ed is also now serving, though, as the Director of Church Planting and Multiplication at Harbor Network. So they tapped into a good resource, say hey, we want to use you to serve and plant churches all over the globe. And now we've joined them, that uh, network called Harbor. Uh, but Ed's first church plant that started his passion and commitment to church planting was King's Chapel. Amen. And for reasons that are not important right now, the fact is that God is using him in his passion and desire to encourage, to assess uh, church planters and instruct church planters now and just... Just using him in a mighty way as God is uh, just, you know, churches are just preaching the gospel. Ed's greatest accomplishment, I meant this, uh, I said this at a refuel though, I think he would agree. Ed's greatest accomplishment was getting his lovely wife Diane to say yes. <laughs> Ed has great, uh, four great children and a few months ago he now goes by the greatest title of his life, Gramps. He's here <laughs> with his lovely w- uh, wife Diane as well. And he's our brother and he's my friend, a mentor in many ways. And I am just so excited to have him here. So I'm going to invite him up at the same time. Children are dismissed for Children's Church and children teachers too. So come on up, Pastor Ed. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, there he goes. Of course, he's got to be the loudest one. Let's hear for Ed Marcel. Let, let me pray. Could, could we pray together uh, before he begins? Father, I, I, I personally thank you for this dear brother and his lovely family. God, they've been such an encouragement to me over the past 16 years leading this church, Lord, and I, I, I don't know uh, if I could have done it without him and his encouragement to me. So thank you personally. Thank you also for the, Father, for the kingdom uh, that you are establishing, that the church uh, will go forth. Um, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord, in raising up this dear brother as a church planner, planter, uh, uh, just a, a great encouragement. Lord, we pray your blessing on him as he transitions in many ways. Uh, Lord, use him for your glory. Help him to proclaim the word of God here and around the world. And uh, Lord, we look forward and we'll give you the glory and the praise in all that you do uh, through this servant of yours. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.
1: Well, that is incredibly gracious. True about my wife. Uh, so 25 years ago, uh, we made the trek from Texas to here. We squeezed that three-day drive into six days, I think, with our four kids. Uh, and we had such a passion for what was going to happen in an area that desperately needed churches and had a confidence that seemed unquenchable. At 55, I stand behind before you a much humbler and stupider and slower man than I was at 30. But God was incredibly gracious. Pastor Lou gave me a tour today. And just to see, like, how this place has grown. And, and just to look at faces where someone came up to me and said, Hey, the over-under on you knowing people here is about 10 to 12. And just to see so many new faces, things that I couldn't imagine, is a really good reminder. The things that you're doing for the Lord now that, that may seem terrifying, that may seem easy, that, that may seem burdensome in moments... If you watch those things grow and let the Lord nurture them, you will be the amazed person in 25 years to say, this is what God has done with these small, small efforts that I was doing in those moments. Boy, I'm I, I get I'm half Italian, half Irish, so I either repress emotions for my entire life or they all come out. So I'm walking a line right here, guys. <laughs> so give me a moment. <laughs> it, it's from the heart, though, that it's really good for us to be back here. But what I want us to talk about now is how we as Christians, every single man woman in this room who identifies Jesus as their Lord and Savior, has to live. In one lane of our life, we live as those who are already elevated with Christ. We live as those who pursue Him, who look upon Him in the great glorious hope of His image becoming more imprinted upon us as we seek after Him. If I put a word on it, we are mystics. We follow after the invisible, eternal God constantly. In another sense, the church is sort of like a monastery, not that we wear old-timey robes or live in stone buildings, but we're here with people that we're confident we're safe to agree with when we talk about the Bible. That's not always the case outside of the church doors. It's a place where we can link together and do ministry because we can say, our God put us together here, and like a team who's been well-assembled by a managing director, we belong here together, and we have gifts that need to be used together. We, We exist as monastics, as pilgrims on this journey together. But I want us to focus especially on the third one that I want us to talk about, that we all are. We're all chasing after God. We're all working as a church together. We're also all missionaries. That word, when I was a young Christian to me, in my early 20s, meant the men and women who were going to other countries, who had a picture with yarn going somewhere on a map, right? And It's not what it means to me now. As a director of church planting, my, my hope and my goal is for us who are in a post-Christian world, and that's where we are in the northeast of the United States. I, I hear my brothers in the south and midwest say, well, oh, the post-Christian world is coming, and I, man, I have to pause, but I've been working there for 15 years. You, it's already arrived. You just don't know it yet. This is, this is where we are, where I pastor, just up the road in Troy, 1% evangelical in Rensselaer County. I mean, in one sense, we have what the military calls a target-rich environment for evangelism. 99 out of 100 people you would talk to need to hear the gospel. But it also means something happened. If we could reel back time and look at history, we would see a church that shaped the northeast of the United States. I mean, you might even say that Puritan New England was the original Bible Belt. So how did we go from that to becoming America's mission field? with only 1% of men and women getting up in the morning and saying, we will seek you, Lord, and we will strive to serve you no matter what our day brings. From being the center of life, where the village green was the common place of the church, and often in New England towns, the the guys who were elders at your church were the same men who were select men in your government, right? So we'd have Bill Blake over building codes, Lou over uh, law enforcement and anything that required... uh, (laughs) But now, in this post-Christian world, we're looking at a very different place. When the Barna Group did a study in 2016, it found Albany, Schenectady, Detroit, the capital district, was the number one place that was considered post-Christian. And they had all these definitions of what it meant to have had churches and people going, now we're the desert. And we were the number one place in being least biblically literate. I mean, quite literally, by God's providence, we, my brothers and sisters, are in the epicenter of post-Christianity in North America. So how do we live there? It can be frightening if we think we have no idea, but here's the very good news that we can take in all of our lives. God knew. This is no surprise. He, he's not caught short. He didn't gasp at watching Christianity roll back in the Northeast over the years. And I want us to look today at the book of Acts, chapter 17. Find your way there to verse 16. I'm going to read from there to the end of the chapter as we enter our time in the Word this morning. While you're turning there, here's what we will look at. First, we're going to talk about and look at the heart of God and how the heart of God informs the people of God, how the fatherhood of God defines how we should see this world. Then we'll walk with St. Paul, who was the missionary to the pre-Christian world, and see what we learn from him as we are the missionaries of the post-Christian world and Finally, we'll join Paul at the place that was the center of the pre-Christian world's thought, Athens, and the center of that city's ideas and those thoughts, Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Huh, what would it be like to live in a trendy country, huh? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even one of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was, were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we open your word because we desire to be good children who are taught by you. Father, your spirit gave us this word and indwells us to help us connect to you more deeply. Would you speak to us in this family time? Would you help shape our hearts, Lord? Even now where there needs to be clarity, where there needs to be repentance, where there needs to be a call to courage and hope in you or a call just to attention, would you give that to us, Lord, that this would be your time with your people? Father God, we ask that as you build the foundation under us, that you continue to show us more of Christ, and as you build the goal ahead of us, you would continue to show us more of Christ, and as we hear your word today, you would continue to show us more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose whose name we now pray. Amen. We saw in one of the slides of scripture that came up in Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission that calls all the disciples of Jesus to, while they're going about this world, to make disciples. It's the New Testament call for us to be missionaries. If you don't know it, you should be familiar with that. In Matthew 28, it's worth looking up, spending some time reading. It will help you reorient your life a little bit. If you know it, sometimes we need to get even a little bit behind that and realize this call to be a light and a missionary to this world was not just a Christian invention. It's the heart of God that goes beyond him and extends that grace and knowledge of himself. And it was true for the people of God in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament as well. That they were always called to look outward and follow and give to the other. Abraham, the the first pilgrim, the father of faith, the one who knew what it was like to leave the things with which he was comfortable, to move aside from the known and the controlled, to follow God into places unknown, that guy. That guy was told you will bless all nations by what you're doing. It was never isolated, it was never just about him, never just about what he had. It was about everyone. Under Moses in the Exodus, in Exodus nine, fourteen and sixteen, it gives a purpose that the Egyptians, the ones who were persecuting the people of God, would know him, and that his name would be proclaimed in quote, the whole earth. it worked when they're leaving in exodus 12 it says there's a mixed multitude along with the people of god along with israel who are following after you guys are in isaiah think about what the great prophet says in isaiah 42 and repeats in chapter 49 that the people of god were meant to be a light to the gentiles to to all the others they were meant not to hide from them though We know Israel could commonly end up in that trap of saying, it's different and scary to be talking to the nations who don't fear you, so we're going to step aside and just love that we get to know you. But he told them to be an unconstrained light to all the nations. You see, this was always the heart of the Father. And if we learn anything about God in Christ, it's that Christ always amplifies and helps us to understand the heart of the Father. That's part of the greatness of the Incarnation. So Lou told everyone that I do have a grandchild right now. He was he was named for me. He's Eduardo Francesco Lyle. My my daughter didn't mirror in Italian, so I realize it ends a little differently than it begins. But it's wonderful. And there are times you just try to connect with him, even though he's months old. And I'll take out the the ukulele of heaven, and just play notes because he'll look. And I'll do anything to get Eddie to look at me, right? To say, Eddie, I love you. You're my boy. Understand the incarnation is God doing that with us that he stooped to the lowest level he could imagine. I will become just like them. I will look them in the eye and declare myself to them with every word and every motion in a way that they can understand the invisible God in flesh with them. And Jesus said, when you follow me, you're meant to be like a city on a hill that is a shining beacon, a place that you can see from a long way off and be able to say there is hope there, there is light there. You... Not, not a literal city. You and I are meant to be those lights to people in this world. That they can see us and say, there is hope in the living God as we center on him. I, I personally have come to believe something about everything we believe as Christians. So if, if you study theology and open up a systematic theology book and have all the names of all the stuff, right? Anthropology, the study of man. Hamardiology, the study of sin. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. And then somewhere we'd have Christology. I don't think they meant to say these were all equal, because here's what I believe now. I'm convinced all those theologies are really just branches of Christology. That if we understand Jesus, we understand how the church works. If we understand Jesus, we understand what mankind is supposed to be. If we understand Jesus, we understand the severity of sin. If we understand Jesus, we understand theology proper and the Father. If we understand Jesus, we understand missions. So let's look to Jesus for one second as we talk about being missionaries in a post-Christian world. In John 1.14, you can go ahead and flip back there. It's the book right before Acts. John will write his gospel and he begins with sort of a, a cosmic refresh from everything from creation to now. And we'll say this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace. And full of truth in that one verse i think he gives us god's plan for being missionaries in christ presence he dwelt among us literally the greek word is the same word used in the old testament Greek translations of the word tabernacle and if we were the jewish people the old testament the tabernacle has our heart and mind that is the place that for us is the physical location of god if there were one where he was we would know the tabernacle's it And now God says, I I am present in that way among you and full of two things, grace and truth. So hard to follow Jesus, isn't it? Because the biggest problem is we're just not like Jesus. I I am never full of grace and truth. I'm usually full of one or the other. If I'm having a bad day and I need to correct someone, I joyfully go about my business being a dispenser of truth all day long. (laughs) If I'm feeling particularly vulnerable myself, boy, am I a good person to come and talk to grace about. Well, we all need help sometimes. Jesus is full of both constantly. Presence, grace, and truth. I think that's the primary means for any missionary in any culture at any time for engaging the people around them. You have to be present. Brothers and sisters, I realize the world has gotten insanely scary. I think COVID taught people two things that the church knew and maybe need to be reminded of. We're not going to live forever here. People were terrified of the idea of death. Remember when they were saying, oh, man, there's a 6% mortality rate in Italy? It turned out not to be true. But, boy, people were terrified because they realized, oh, my gosh, I could die. And my first thought was, you didn't know that yesterday? What have you been thinking about this whole time? You've been watching way too much reality TV, brother. We're going to die, and this world is out of our control. But we acted like we didn't know that one either. That somehow we believed if we really did the right things in the right way, in the right order, you could make it all work. Have you never had children? I mean, you realize you do things the right way, right reason, right order, and it still doesn't work just like it didn't for your parents. We, we can try so many things, but the base is we have to get out there and be among those who might at times scare us. I mean, look at our European history. When the Dark Ages came, It was St. Patrick and the Christians who went to pre-Christian Ireland, a terrifying place, full of human slavery, torture, and Druidism. The rest of Europe is hiding in monumental cathedrals, saying, we better build bigger, better walls because the barbarians are out there. And Patrick and his boys and girls are out there saying, let's go hang out with the barbarians and they're not going to see Jesus. Don't be afraid in these days to the point where you are no longer a light. Don't be afraid where you're no longer on the mission that you're God has sent you on. But understand how to do that, to be present in a post-Christian world. This is the great treasure of St. Paul. If I switch to my second point, it's the moment we read about in Scripture where St. Paul exchanges the comfort and knowledge he has of the synagogue and the Hebrew system of religious worship to being out in the streets in the Hellenistic world with people who don't even think like he did on any basis of foundation. See, when he's over here in the synagogue, he knows just where to go. He's comfortable. He knows the choreography of any, every synagogue service. He's the one who says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Gamaliel was my teacher. I'm the one who was circumcised correctly. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul. Home court advantage. So when he comes to the Grecian world in, the, in Acts 17, where's the first place he goes? Synagogue. See, before the passage we read today, if I jump back to Acts seventeen one through 3 it's going to say he's in Amphipolis in Apollonia, and Apollonia, and as was his custom, it says, where there was a synagogue of Jews, he went in, and on the Sabbath day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ does the same thing in Acts 17.10, except in Berean Thessalonica. We know that sometimes because we, we have that verse maybe in our heads of, ah, oh, the Thessalonians, those were the guys who were more noble than the Bereans, the scripture said, because they searched what Paul said. When they heard something preached, they got after it. They weren't being fed, they were self-feeders who were just taking those tools and using them more deeply. Like, they're exciting Christians, but it's the synagogue. And he's doing the same thing. He's reasoning from the Hebrew scriptures about Jesus the Christ in an environment he understands and controls, and then he's interrupted with something that we all kind of hate, waiting. It says he was waiting in Athens. I don't know how you are with waiting. <laughs> waiting means I'm probably going to start a small project that isn't going to get done once the waiting is done and it's time to do the other thing again, because I, I can't wait. I'll, I'll start impatiently showing what my nature is. I'll be a buzzing bee in a box trying to do the next thing rather than just wait. And and if I'm preaching to myself pastorally for you to overhear, I'd say, man, don't be a fool, Ed. Waiting is sometimes God's way of training us to listen to him for a future that has something in it that we don't understand yet. And Paul finds himself waiting. So while he's waiting, he walks out into the streets. And it says he's in the marketplace Talking with people every day. He's following what Jesus' missionary markers are. He's present. He's not hiding. He's like, man, I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait for my buddies to get here. I'll have reinforcements. The troops will roll up, and we'll hit the next synagogue, and we'll keep going on our way. He goes, nope. Still got to be a light. Jesus was present among people who did not welcome him. I can do this. And he walks out into Athens, and he starts talking to people. But first, there's an emotional preparation that happened that you may have noticed. In verse 16, it says, His spirit was provoked within him as soon as he walked outside. So this doesn't feel or look like what is best for them, what reflects God. Hmm, that doesn't feel too far off from today these days. that You can walk around the world, pick up your newspaper, scan your net, and say, This doesn't look like what I think God would have for us right now. But what doesn't he do is as fascinating to me as what he does do. He doesn't start yelling at people. He doesn't start screaming, repent. He doesn't open angry websites that say "Uh, people who worship idols can go to hell. He he doesn't do that. For him, his heart being provoked is more about a heart that's broken because he knows for each one of them what good things the Father has for them. He's not mad at them. They're prisoners of war. The Scripture will say they've been blindfolded by the enemies. If people are wearing the same uniform as you, the image of God, and they're blindfolded. that usually means they're, your, they're prisoners, not your enemies. so you try to free them. And that's the emotional response. Sometimes we can get caught up being so angry that we think the other people are our enemies. That's not missionary thinking. That's not Christian thinking. They're deceived by the deceiver. Satan's your enemy because he's the enemy of the Lord. You need to be provoked for their good. He's sent by Jesus to go out to be this kind of missionary. But he's also the kind of missionary who takes time to be engaged with his mind, not just his heart. Passionate people are great, but passionate people are imprecise. Man, they're just a hot mess. You can't deal with them. They're just always screaming about the next thing emotionally that comes along. I don't care if it's theology. I don't care if it's at work. I don't care if it's a sports team. Passion without precision, kind of useless. Precision without passion, that's kind of dead. Dead. That's the boring person that you're stuck with at the family dinner table talking to who's just giving you step-by-step what they do procedurally every day at work. Man, you're like, oh, please, just maybe I'll die from eating this chicken tonight and I won't have to listen to more of this. But when you have precision without passion or passion without precision, nothing good is happening. The church, likewise, has to exist on all of its levels, emotionally and intellectually. Intellectually, in verses 18 through 20, we see him engage with people. He goes out and he meets two philosophers, an Epicurean and a Stoic. Now, I'm just going to own, I have a brother who's a philosophy professor, and he might say you're doing a horrible job representing these philosophies, but I've talked to him about the very basics, and he said you have the very basics correct. So all I'm saying is the very basics, right? The Epicurean's view on life is this. Enjoy it all because it goes quickly. Eat well, drink well. Breathe deep, say life, and move on, right? These are the carpe diem bros. Over here are the Stoics. They also agree life is short, but their position is, so don't act like a fool. Just stiff upper lip, die quietly while it's your time, it'll all be over soon, is sort of their (laughs) mantra, right? These are the two groups of philosophers. As you can see, they don't get along with each other, but Paul has brought them together in a discussion. And it says he, he, he's proclaiming, he's arguing, he's discussing with them what's going on. Real people who really disagree with him. And he doesn't drive them away and just say, you're wrong, the Bible says this. He could do that. He could walk away from the Stoic and Epicurean and think, I want an argument. They couldn't answer my truth. But that's not what he does. He's actually listening to them and discussing with them, hearing and giving back. See, our goal is not to win an argument, but to see a soul won for Jesus. And that's a very different process for us. That means sometimes we're just going to have to listen to stuff that we know is not true and just ask good questions and be a listener waiting for, for our chance. I remember one time I was taking drum lessons, um, and the drum instructor who I was working with uh, asked at one point, can, can you teach me Bible as a trade for teaching you drums? And I thought, really good deal, because I'm horrible at drums, and I, this guy will be quicker at Bible. So I started telling him, and I said, yeah, but what, tell me what you believe. I, I had this story of aliens and space DNA, and I mean, it was it was fantastic and insane at the same time, right? And I, I listened to all of it, and I said, wow, you actually have like way more faith than I do. My faith is a little more grounded, but I, I'd be happy to explain it to you and we would occasionally talk back about the E.T. theories that he had, and I'd get back to Jesus. He eventually came to put his faith in Christ as his Savior and realized a story that was saner and more meaningful than the origin story he'd created because I took the time to listen, discuss, and, and even try to take seriously some stuff that was utterly insane and wrong. It's easy to point out the wrongs. Uh, anybody can walk into your house and say, hey, man, here's the crack in the wall you guys have gotten used to. You can find someone else's wrongs. And if it's an us-them, that's our job. If God said, I need you to pit against the people who don't know me, that would be right. But in reality, it's an us-him. It never was, never will be an us-them. We have to become the people then who are conduits to move towards that us-him. And because he lives this way in the post-Christian world, he doesn't end up in the synagogue. These guys would have never been in the synagogue. They have their own places that are special. They have their own hangouts with their own thinkers in their own way. It's called Mars Hill. Does anyone remember from maybe taking high school literature and having to have mythology what Mars is the god of war? Someone else read Edith Hamilton, thank you. I think there's no mistake that of all the pantheon of Greek gods that Paul could present the gospel to in their temple, it's the god of war. I think God is actually showing us what culture war looks like, and I think it's different than what most of us would invent or what most of us have seen in the past. Culture war means an invitation to their place. He's present again. He's among them. And when he's among them, he is so gracious. When he sees idols, what does he say? Hey, this is against the Ten Commandments. Let's smash these. He says, I perceive you are very religious people. This, I think, is about the most positive spin you can give to people who have a collection of idols. Can we agree on that? Boy, you guys are super religious. you got a lot of things here, a lot going on. And and he just pulls them together by being gracious and then says, let me tell you something about this one, the, the platform you have for the invisible God. He does essentially what I would call hacking the culture. He finds the weak point that speaks about Jesus that they don't know and just takes it over and starts using their platform for his message. That's hacking. It's amazing. And what he tells them is that God gave everyone life. In verse 25, he talks about how he gave them life and breath. And if you're a Hebrew like he is, where is he? He's in Genesis. He's in creation. That God formed man from the dust of earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. He's right in creation and telling them without opening the Bible. This is where it all began. And he says, God has given them a place to dwell. He's retelling the creation story, just like with the garden, except now with the nations, this is where you belong. God gave them life and place and meaning. In verse 27, that they might reach for him and search for him. Just like he gave in Genesis, life and place and meaning. He makes the story first the human story that everyone has under God, that we all come from him. Forget the differences. I Man, he'll have differences with Peter about the church, right? They'll argue over who can eat what and who they can sit with and eat what. The church will always have differences with itself. So the church men and women can argue our home table, our family stuff, all we want in private. But when we're out there being missionaries, stick to the big E on the I chart. Talk about Jesus in the way that makes us all together in him. And he can't speak from the scripture, so what does he do? He speaks from their language. He says... In verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, and then for we are all his offspring. And he's quoting two different people. One of them, Epimenides, was kind of a, a cult leader and a poet, kind of David Koresh and Walt Whitman had an evil love child in the ancient Near East. That's what he's got, and he's, and he's quoting that. The other one is writing a poem about what a good God Zeus is, that we are all his offspring. Wow, right? Two things it tells me about our hero, St. Paul. He was aware of the culture. He didn't stand there and go, I have, I have no idea what you guys believe and what your thinkers think. He doesn't whip out a scroll and say, well, here it is. He's highly aware of the world around him, as missionaries must be. If you're going to have a heart for and a passion for these people, I mean, you have to know how they think. Because that will bring the conversations into the moments that he gets to have. When he's now saying, man, here's what you guys think, but let me tell you the truth about these things. So I want to hit pause here in a minute. Because when we sit here and say, Christians, know your culture, and there are parts of this culture you should not know, at least very deeply at all. So when we're talking about culture, I I like a very simple strategy that someone told me a long time ago. There's only three things you can do with culture. You can receive it where you go, this was safe right? I'm from an Italian-American family. My dad was off the boat. They hug and kiss family. They like the people who are related to them, at least on the surface. And I think that's a good thing. I can receive that. That feels like the family of God stuff. Accept and receive people, be interested, maybe not tell them how much weight they're putting on since the last time you saw them, but be involved in their lives. That's a good and godly thing. To receive culture. Then there's to redeem culture. This is okay, but boy, it's broken and dangerous. Let's work on fixing it. And then there's to reject stuff. This is just purely satanic. This looks nothing but evil. I can't be a part of that. That, That's the ways we kind of navigate and conduct ourselves through there. But Paul is taking these pieces of their thought and allowed truth to enter through. See, he's interested in them responding to Jesus for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the love of God, more than he is being angry at what they don't know or don't believe. Maybe he's just smart enough to remember his own story when he was persecuting the church once and would have continued doing that, believing that was his rational best duty to his religion to people. Maybe we've forgotten our story sometimes and that's why we're less gracious. Maybe we forget how undeserving of anything but God's judgment and condemnation we were and so we've become slightly arrogant when we stand next to other people. Maybe it's not a bad thing that the compliment that I got from one person about a sermon that made me think it's the greatest compliment I've gotten as a preacher. He said, Ed, you make me feel like I'm the worst guy for about 15 minutes of the sermon, and then you make me believe that I believe in the greatest God for the next 25 minutes of that sermon. And maybe if we believed that, we would be the kind of gracious missionaries who could walk with these people again and get the results that Paul got, not by correcting their theology, but pointing them to Jesus. Here are the results. They're mixed. It says some mocked him. They laughed at him. If you're too thin-skinned to have people make fun of you, you won't very well follow your God. The mocking that Jesus took for being the Son of God and King of the Jews, it's epic, man. I mean, if you grew up Catholic, it's just in the Stations of the Cross, you kind of have to walk that with your grandma every year. I mean, it is epic. Mel Gibson made a movie about it. It's epic. You're going to get mocked sometimes. But if you can't deal with that, you know, just say, I don't really follow Jesus very well at all, and we'll try to help you out. But understand, some people are going to make fun of you because of what you believe. Then there are these people who want more. Oh, thank God to be the Christians who are there when people want more. I sure did. My wife's pastor would drive an hour to come talk to me because I just had stupid questions like, if time is wave and light is wave, where does it go? And he said, man, that is a great question of quantum physics. So Jesus came to Earth and he lived a sinless <laughs> life. It's not what I asked. But he just, he just kept the spotlight on Jesus for me the whole time, realizing I was a young idiot. But it's important for us to be able to those people who want more and be there for them. The conversation isn't over. They keep it open. Aren't you grateful for those people in your life? And it says, some believe. If it's a movie, it follows Paul, the camera. It tells us what he does next. But boy, I'd love to know about Dionysius, the Areopagite. God didn't leave Athens empty. He puts a man there who's from that collection of philosophers who, discuss things, who believes now. And Damaris, man, for a woman to be on Mars Hill, she is a queen. I mean, she's just a smart, savvy woman. And she believes. And so you've got almost like a new Adam and Eve there in Athens, right? Paul moves on, but there are people who are left there. We don't know what happens. But we know Jesus was with those people. The Spirit indwelt those people. We know throughout an America that's filled with controversy and quarantine that Jesus has never been on lockdown once, that he has been out and among us, the church, the entire time. We know that a culture that may want to cancel his beliefs, he will not be silenced through his church. And so we, the missionaries, have this moment. What I want to do is just encourage you in all three of those places of your walk that I talked about this morning, place where you're a mystic and seeking after your God, because that's the thing that's going to fuel the rest of your life to be the church men and women who love each other well and serve each other as brothers and sisters. But by the grace of God, we need to step out into an area that is post-Christian, 1% or less of ours, and be people who are graciously present to speak truth and grace in this culture at this time. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we humbly thank you that you gave us life that you deign to form from dust, from the lowest stuff on the earth, us, but you gave it something from the greatest, your breath. Lord, breathe into your church again the breath of life. Father, my prayer is for myself that you would teach my heart, Lord, to desire to be present, and for my brothers and sisters to desire to be present with those who are broken. Provoke our hearts, God. When we're there, God, give us presence that is immovable, that we would stay with people even if they suffer, even if they defy us, even if they mock us. And Lord, give us grace as we speak truth and give us courage to speak truth where we need that in the moments where we would hide behind just sweetness and grace. Make us more like Jesus, Lord, I guess is what I'm praying. It's in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we ask such a bold and miraculous thing as that. Amen.